went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering From the Mecca of Mormonism, this is Heart of the Matter. We're in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm Sean McCraney, your host. You have joined us for a first on Heart of the Matter because we're not live tonight. Uh, I'll explain why in a minute. If you have friends or family that want to watch this show on streaming video, they go to www.bornagainmormon.com. They click on the TV shows and they're able to see uh, the shows are streaming uh, on the internet. I'm, we have no in the house tonight because, as I said, this is we're not live because of rescheduling uh, issues in California high schools because of the fires. They've pushed these different sporting events around, and one of the sporting events that is happening tomorrow night or tonight is um, my daughter is going to be presented after playing four years of volleyball, and her dad is supposed is supposed to escort her, and so uh, I am going to do that. And so what we've done is we've pre-recorded this show, and we hope that you enjoy it. Apologies, but Cassidy needs her dad. Shout-outs to Gail and the Almost 80 Ladies. Thank you for your support. To Ivan and Verlene H., Yvonne S., Catherine, trust in the Lord, my sister. Our prayers are with you. And Consuelo, stay strong and get some rest. Now, don't forget, this coming Monday night, we're coming to you, Ogden, Utah. Denny's in Ogden, we're going to be there Monday night, November 5th from 6 p.m. till about 8.30. We'll meet, we'll greet, we'll talk with a little bit of a message, and then we'll retire to the Hampton Inn, which is at 2401 Washington Boulevard, and uh, for an open water public profession baptism. We invite you to come forward and be baptized according to your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring a towel, bring a change of clothes. And there's no specific dress uh, code to be baptized. And then we look forward to meeting you all again Monday night, November 5th at Denny's in Ogden at 1250 Washington Boulevard. I hear they call it 12th Street up there. And then uh, come and start a new life in Jesus if you wish to participate and be baptized. Now, remember, I'm not going to be at Denny's on 5th South tonight in downtown Utah because as uh, you listen to me, I'm actually in Southern California. There may be some people there for a uh, pastor in the pub get-together, whatever, but I won't be there for our traditional get-together on Tuesday nights. Many people feel that the LDS Church is very upfront and clear in the things that they say and do. Not too long ago, Gordon B. Hinckley made an official statement about polygamy. He said, quote, I wish to state categorically that this church has nothing whatsoever to do with those practice, practicing polygamy. Okay? Pretty emphatic categorically state nothing whatsoever okay on October 26 2007 just a few days ago the Deseret Morning News ran an article that was titled tributes abound for sister hunter it was a coverage of the passing and funeral of LDS prophet seer and revelator Howard W Hunter who's deceased it was a funeral for his second wife Inis now, it seems Ines lived a very nice life, and she was well-liked, and she was sealed to Howard W. Hunter after his first wife, Claire Jeffs, uh, died of Alzheimer's disease. Many LDS leaders came to the funeral, and even Gordon B. Hinckley himself came and spoke. The Deseret News reported that Hinckley said, quote, that he affirmed the eternal nature of the marriage between Sister Hunter, Ines, 
and the former church president. So on the one hand, Hinckley says he categorically states that the LDS church has nothing whatsoever to do with those practicing polygamy. And on the other hand, he affirms as recently as three or four days ago the eternal nature of the marriage between Howard W. Hunter and his second eternal wife. Understand, I don't care if they practice polygamy or not. That's what, if they want to do that in America, I, they can do that. People do just as bad things. But I do care when they make public pronouncements which claim they have nothing to do with it, but then they privately assure their members that they do. That's exactly what the situation is here. Speaking of polygamy, many of you will remember, uh, as I've talked about polygamy on the shows, that I met a young man at Squatter's Pub. He was uh, courting another wife at the pub, and uh, his name was Ben, and we talked, and he's the one who made the comment, uh, something about salvation is tough to earn for these wives who have to go through polygamy in order to earn their salvation. And then we, as we had a show on polygamy, Ben actually called in and we talked for three or four minutes about his perspective on polygamy and why it was the right thing to do and how I'm missing the mark on it. I learned uh, yesterday that Ben was killed tragically in a small airplane crash heading back to Centennial Park in southern Utah, Arizona area to be with his uh, polygamous commune where he lived. Our hearts go out to Ben's uh, uh, existing family. He has a number of uh, children. And also to Catherine, who could have been one of his uh, suffering wives now. We praise God that she was able to see clearly on that. And again, Catherine, our prayers are with you. With that, uh, let me talk to you quickly about I Was a Born Again Mormon. It's the book that we uh, offer to you. You can get it in most uh, bookstores here in uh, Utah. You can order it online by going to www.bornagainmormon.com. And uh, I think it's a good read because you're not going to find the traditional anti-Mormon stuff. But it will tell you how Mormonism is lacking in their um, position of being true Christians. And so uh, it, I think that would help you out as, we, um, as you search for truth. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the airwaves. We thank you for the station and for our viewers, for the volunteers and the people who are here to help the show. We pray your blessings upon those who are seeking for truth, that you will open their eyes and ears, especially as we talk about this subject tonight, and that uh, my intentions will be made known to them as we share this information. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we introduced the topic of racist doctrines that were once in the LDS church. Our tech genius Micah, Micah came to pastor in the pub last week, and he asked a few questions about it from some people. So let's watch this short two-minute video. So to me, it was just kind of a, a good thing to not have to go through the embarrassment of trying to explain to one of your friends why you, they didn't have the priesthood in the first place. And um, it was hard even even later on when somebody asked me, why did it take him so long to get the priesthood and why was it that way in the first place? I didn't have a good answer, you know, and so. And so as we were growing up, we learned that uh, in the year 1978, that law changed in the LDS church. But in the FLDS, they still believe that it didn't change. So. Um, it, it affected us in the, in the sense that we we still believe that uh, the white race was still the, very superior over all the other races. If you had one drop of blood from another race, um, you couldn't hold the priesthood at, at all, and therefore you couldn't make it to the highest glory. Um, I did know that they weren't allowed to have the priesthood at one point. I was raised somewhat teachings about the curse of Cain and how he did turn black and that line went through Noah and it came it came back out. Um, for me though that was always, it was never really explained that they weren't valiant, it was never really explained how they became cursed. It wasn't 
really explain why they were, the priesthood was withheld. I did watch a movie in seminary about blacks having a priesthood where they showed this guy in Africa listening to the radio and hearing that he was now able to receive the priesthood and how glad and happy he was and he was dancing and crying and I just was thinking, yeah, but what about when you didn't have the priesthood? Didn't that bug you? And now they're saying that you can and is that, that, that just seems wrong to me. When they changed their doctrine, to me it was just an indication that they of a political expediency. They changed because they needed to, because they had to, because they wanted to conform, because they wanted to be, to be politically correct. And to me it was just another indication that they were not what they presented themselves as being, the only true church. As uh, I'm still Mormon, and you know, as a Mormon, when it happened, it was revelation, and I believed in it, and it was a good move, and it was a revelation, as I believed it from God and our prophet, and uh, in the events of uh, my life and looking at the program tonight, um, you know, there raises some questions to me, and, uh, you know, looking at it a little more thorough and open-minded about the possibilities of being black and happen to accept that, that, that you know, uh, things that the Mormons believe they did before the pre-existence. It was just a eye-opener. So, uh, as I mentioned last week, racism began in Mormonism and can be traced to the text of the Book of Mormon. I received an email from somebody saying, well, you certainly didn't show us where in the Book of Mormon it gives racist doctrines. Well, welcome to tonight because we're going to throw out some great evidence that shows racism has began in the Book of Mormon and it's carried through through the prophets up until 1978. As Joseph progressed in his theological conjecturing, the idea of a pre-existence took a more prominent role and was incorporated into his so-called translation of this book called the Book of Abraham. We're going to speak about the Book of Abraham in a moment, but let's talk about racism in the Book of Mormon uh, for the first few minutes. There are several catchword comparatives that are used in the Book of Mormon that when reviewed from an outsider's perspective, if you just sit there and listen to these words, you're going to hear how um, they are racially pejorative terms, all right? Speaking positively, Joseph described people in the Book of Mormon as white and delightsome, fair and beautiful, fair and white, all right? In sharp contrast, he also used dark and loathsome, to describe people groups who have become corrupted because of evil in their lives. All right? In describing the Gentiles that would someday discover America, meaning Columbus and others, Joseph had Nephi say in the Book of Mormon, quote, I beheld that they were white and exceedingly fair like unto my people before they were slain. Several chapters later, he describes how the Lamanites, who the LDS claim were the beginning of some of the American Indian people, became Lamanites. Listen to what the Book of Mormon, look, listen to what it says about how the, some of the American Indians became American Indians. Quote, And he, meaning God, had a curse come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing, because of their iniquity. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against them, that they had become like unto flint, wherefore as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, that the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. End quote. Obviously, the writer of the book of Nephi, whether it was Joseph Smith or an ancient American named Nephi, which I don't believe it was, believed that dark skin was repulsive and white skin was delightsome or delightful. Reinforcing this opinion was the fact that later in the Book of Mormon, when the dark Lamanites converted to Christianity or Mormonism, something miraculous occurred. Their skin pigmentation began to reverse. It says in 3 Nephi 2, 14 through 15, quote, And their curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. And their young men and their daughters became exceedingly fair, and they were num numbered among the Nephites and were called Nephites. Sadly, according to the Book of Mormon, as the Lamanites returned to their evil ways, their skin grew dark again. 
So we have this pigmentary thing going on where in the Book of Mormon, they first were cursed with a dark skin, and then as they begin to embrace the teachings of the religious leaders, their skin began to be light, and then those who fell back, their skin began to get dark again. It's like the barometer for, for the righteousness was a skin color. Nephite prophets are constantly portrayed as looking for the day when their dark-skinned Indian Lamanite brothers and sisters would become, quote, white and delightsome as they embrace the gospel preached to them. As an interesting side note, in the 1960s and 70s when I grew up in the church, there was a push uh, among the LDS people to adopt or bring a Native American Indian into an LDS home to help them assimilate to help assimilate these poor uh, American Indians into a less Lamanite way of living. Many LDS couples who followed the prophet on this recommendation claimed that they could actually see the skin pigment of these Indian children who came to live with them get lighter and lighter as they learned more about the church. Later in the Book of Mormon, a prophet named Jacob to rebuke his people says, listen to this quote, Oh, my brethren, I fear that unless you shall repent of your sins, that, your, that their skins will be whiter than yours when ye shall be brought before them before the throne of God. I mean, does this make any sense? Can you hear the immature mind of Joseph Smith coming out with these postulations? While these statements are certainly racist, they also seem to extol some kind of pigmentary theology that says skin color changes according to the level of sin or disobedience in the lives of the individuals considered. This is pure fiction. What kind of God makes changes to the skin pigmentation of people back and forth from white and pure and black to loathing based on their attitudes or actions or their ideals? It's the Willy Wonka God. He, he, he just plays these games with people, these outward manifestations to show them, and it's just absurd. Isn't it interesting that Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon God changed the skin of all the Lamanite people to dark and loathsome, the babies, the children, the teenagers, the parents, but he didn't change the skin color of the Laman of the Nephites when they became wicked. They stayed white. They just continued to stay white. How come God doesn't use his pigmentology effect on all peoples the world over? How come the Nazis didn't get dark and loathsome as they d perpetrated their evil upon the world? How come they just stayed white and, and the Aryan race? You know? Why did the Bolsheviks stay white? Why did the Manson family stay white? I mean, if this was a truth, we would see this happening. You know, it doesn't happen anyway. That It's just fiction. Joseph's racial explanations in the Book of Mormon were only as advanced as the backwooded ideals of his mind. And he provided this backwooded thought as to what was going on. America was settling, and we were infiltrating into parts of the country where we saw savages. They were a different color than we were. And these, we wanted to know what they were. We wanted to know why they were. And Joseph was never reticent to provide people with answers. He would always have answers. And in 1830, he provided why the American Indians are darker, even when God didn't. I'm not certain of the percentage of color breakdown in uh, the world relative to skin color, but I would guess that, that probably 80% of our world is not white and delightsome. All right? What does this say about Joseph's racial implications written into the Book of Mormon? It says two words, fanciful fiction. That's all it says. And this doctrines, these doctrines were the beginning of his racist attitudes. And they were, of course, laid out on the American Indian. Okay. In 1835, after a series of very discouraging events happened and the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons were beginning to doubt Joseph Smith's ability as a prophet because he made some serious errors, a guy named Michael Chandler comes to Kirtland, Ohio, and he has some mummies. And in those mummies are these manuscripts, these scrolls. And he comes to Joseph Smith because he hears that Joseph claims to translate these types of things. There was no Rosetta Stone. We didn't have any type of proof of what was said. And Joseph took these and said, yes, I'll translate them. 
And from those, we come up with a thing called the Book of Abraham. Really the Pearl of Great Price, but specifically we're talking about within the Pearl of Great Price is a thing called the Book of Abraham. Now, we covered the Book of Abraham a few months ago, and we talked for two or three weeks about the Pearl of Great Price and, and how that came about. And if you want to see that, you can go to our, our website and watch those shows to get a history on that. But bottom line, Joseph Smith used his spiritual sensitivities to look at these manuscripts and suddenly proclaim that Abraham, Father Abraham, wrote this stuff out. All right? Now, this new and miraculous papyri created new and miraculous faith in the people who were losing their faith at the time. And um, the problem was there was no way to confirm or denounce anything that Joseph said that these papyri said. Remember, we had no Rosetta Stone. They didn't know how to translate English, uh, Egyptian. They had some idea, but it wasn't anything like it is today. And so he could get away with saying, it says this, and no one knew the difference. In the book of Abraham, Joseph claimed to decipher, to decipher some very advanced revelations regarding matter. And he introduced more information on what Latter-day Saints call the pre-existence or the pre-mortal life. As a side note, there is some substantial evidence that Joseph plagiarized his ideas on matter being eternal and uncreated and on a pre-existence from reading Thomas Dick's book, Philosophy of a Future State. Sidney Rigdon even openly and directly quoted from Thomas Dick's book, Philosophy of a Future State, in an article in the LDS Messenger and Advocate in November of 1836. So that this fanciful philosophy that was proposed by a guy who was not LDS, Joseph knew of him, and he borrowed many of uh, Thomas Dick's thoughts on matter and on, and a, and on a pre-existence, all right? But that, this is a totally different show, another show we'd have to cover it. Anyway, one of uh, Thomas Dick's unusual ideas was that various orders of intelligences populated the stars in the heavens and that these intelligences were on this journey to progress and to become more and more perfect, all right? Sound familiar? Joseph used this idea of a pre-existence to flesh out an entire system of a progressive theology. Included in this were more answers on race. Except this time, Joseph in the book of Abraham didn't address Indians. This time, Joseph addressed blacks. This is now we start to see Joseph providing answers on why there are black people. Now, last week we talked about there being black people because God is a diverse God who loves all color and he loves all peoples and he makes us in diverse and wonderful and beautiful ways and he acclimates us according to where we live. He gives us genetic predispositioning to accommodate those things. This is all God's plan. Joseph, he had different reasons for the blacks receiving the priesthood. This is where it originated in the book of Abraham, and bottom line it says, if you came through this line, this heritage, from Cain down through Pharaoh, through Egyptus, through Ham, you would not be able to hold the priesthood. All right, that is the big line that suddenly said, wait a minute, there is a group of people, there's a race of people who don't get to hold the priesthood. When we combine these words with the teaching of a pre-existence, a new and very racist doctrine gets legs. A doctrine that taught that black people could not hold the LDS priesthood. What this meant was that while blacks could be baptized and become members of the LDS church, they were not permitted to enter into the temples because only those who held the priesthood could enter into temples. And if you cannot enter into the temple as a Latter-day Saint because you don't hold the priesthood, you can't go to the celestial kingdom or the place where Latter-day Saints say that God the Father lives. Therefore, by banning blacks from the priesthood, Latter-day Saints essentially banned blacks from heaven. That's the end result of this doctrine. There seems to be a sort of theological chronology to, or procession to this whole way of blacks not being able to have the priesthood. And let me lay it out for you really quickly. Let me summarize for you. First, there is a belief in a pre-existence. Joseph taught, and he says that each one of us on earth who live here on this earth lived in this pre-existence as spirits. 
And our spirits were formed by God out of these intelligences that have always existed. Let me give you a quote from Joseph Smith. He said, The mind of man is as immortal as God himself. God never did have power to create the spirit of man at all. God never did have the power to create the spirit of man at all. That's in the Times and Seasons, Volume 5, page 615, reprinted in the History of the Church, Volume 6. Okay, so he says he absorbs this thing that God, he gathered these intelligences and he formed spirit children out of them. And those, uh, the book of Abraham teaches that some of those spirits in the pre-existence, some of those intelligences and spirits were more noble than others. And Joseph says the book of Abraham, that Abraham wrote, that they were more noble and God made them his rulers here on this earth. A natural outflow of this, if there were spirits that were more noble in a pre-existence, was the idea that there were spirits that were not noble, spirits that were mediocre, spirits that were bad spirits, poor spirits, in the pre-existence that would come down to this earth. If we have noble, we're going to have less than noble. All right? And guess who they came to here on this earth? That's right, the black folk. Now, the book of Abraham, as I read, teaches us of the lineage of the blacks and teaches us that they could not hold the priesthood. The lineage came through Cain. Mormons believed and taught that Cain killed Abel and God put a mark upon Cain. That mark was a black skin. And there's other things they've said that it was. And through Cain and his lineage, the black race of the pre-existence who weren't noble would come through and populate this world. Those are the teachings. I'm going to give you the quotes in a minute to substantiate what I'm saying. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that the mark that God put on Cain was a skin of blackness. Uh, but this was a common racist belief that was uh, pa- passed around back then. And as, as, as I said last week, Joseph Smith didn't originate that, but he incorporated it. And so through Cain came, the black skin started. And then through Ham, Noah had three sons through the flood, Ham being one of them. Ham happened to marry a black woman named Egyptus. And so the book of Abraham teaches us that through the flood, the black race continued on through Ham's marriage to Egyptus. And so anybody who is of that lineage does not get to ever hold the priesthood. So finally, uh, this is where the black race comes from. So what we have is the idea that blacks were inferior intelligences and inferior spirits in this preexistence because they were not valiant in choosing God's plan. They were born through the line of Cain. That is their father who was cursed with a black skin because he was the first murderer on this earth. And like almost everything else in Joseph's life, the blacks and the priesthood thing was both a matter of progressively changing theology and it morphed according to social pressures. Whatever was necessary to keep Mormonism growing and moving, Joseph used it, whether it be sexist or racist or a fabrication in the name of God. It is known that Joseph even gave at least one black man named Elijah Abel the priesthood. This was before he came up with the revelations that they couldn't have the priesthood. So it shows you that everything was in this. It wasn't God saying, this is my truth, follow it. It was all this progressive movement to keep things going. All right. The practice became short-lived, though. Elijah Abel and maybe one other man, black man were given this priesthood before it was stopped. And again, like many other seeds, Joseph merely planted like multiple gods, becoming a god, the non-divinity of Jesus, the fallibility of the Bible, plural marriage, blood atonement, continued revelations. Blacks being banned from the priesthood really sprouted wings under the direction of LDS leaders who came after Joseph Smith. Joseph got killed in a shootout, and so then all these other leaders came and they took these seeds that Joseph had planted, and man, they made a garden out of them. An an entire theology, and we see those today. What are some of the attitudes and comments LDS leaders of the not-too-distant past and distant past have whispered into our ears? Well, let me share some of them with you. Regarding the pre-existence, it was said here by Bruce R. McConkie, 
those who were less valiant in the pre-existent and who thereby had certain spiritual restrictions imposed upon them during mortality are known to us as the Negroes. Such spirits are sent to earth through the lineage of Cain, the mark put upon him for his rebellion against God and his murder of Abel being a black skin. That was in 1966. Ninth president of the church, David O. McKay, conceded in a discussion, quote, I know of no scriptural basis for denying the priesthood to Negroes other than one verse in the book of Abraham. However, I believe, as you suggest, that the real reason dates back to our pre-existent life. That's in the book Mormonism and the Negro. I have another book called The Church and the Negro. It's amazing that a church has to have any book that talks about the church and another race or the church and uh, 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 anything. The church and the Negro. The fact that this book exists is problematic, in my opinion. All right, listen to this. This is by Elder Orson Hyde, delivered to a high priest quorum in uh, Nauvoo, April of 27, 1845. Ready? At the time the devil was cast out of heaven, there were some spirits that did not know who had authority, whether God or the devil. They consequently did not take a very active part on either side, but rather thought that the devil had been abused. These spirits were not considered bad enough to be cast down to hell and never have bodies, neither were they considered worthy of an honorable body on this earth. But those spirits in heaven that rather lent an influence to the devil, thinking he had a little had a little the best right to govern, but did not take the very active part anyway, were required to come into the world and take bodies of the accursed lineage of Cain and hence the Negro or African race. Okay, so he says they were given an inferior bo a body that was not honorable here on this earth. And that, he says, was the Negro race. Regarding interracial marriage, these are some things that prophets that we have trusted of old have said. Prophets and apostles. Mark Peterson, who was a guy who was alive when I was a member of the church. This is what he said. We must not intermarry with the Negro. Why? If I were to marry a Negro woman and have children by her, my children would all be cursed as to the priesthood. If there is one drop of Negro blood in my children, as, I've, as I have read to you, they receive the curse. Brigham Young said that if a person who uh, chooses to mix his blood with that of the black race, the, the, death, the penalty is death on the spot. This is the quote, shall I tell you the law of God in regard to the African race? This is Brigham Young saying, this is the law of God regarding the African race. If the white man who belongs to the chosen seed mixes his blood with the seed of Cain, the penalty under the law of God is death on the spot. This will always be so. That's Brigham Young, Brigham Young University. Uh, of Brigham Young Unit. Journal of Discourses, volume 10, page 110. Regarding Cain, this is what has been said. Cain slew his brother and the Lord put a mark upon him, which is the flat nose and black skin. How long is that race uh, to endure the dreadful curse that is upon them? That curse will remain upon them and they can never hold the priesthood or share it until all the other descendants of Adam have received the promises and enjoyed the blessings of the priesthood and the keys thereof. Until the last ones of the residue of Adam's children are brought up in that favorable position, the children of Cain cannot receive the first ordinances of the priesthood. They were the first that were cursed, and they will be the last from whom the curse will be removed. Journal of Discourses, Volume 7. Joseph Fielding Smith, many, many decades later, said, Not only was Cain called upon to suffer, but because of his wickedness, he became the father of an inferior race. There's not a really good spirit going on in me right now listening to all this junk. A curse was placed upon him, a curse that had been continued through his lineage and must do so while time endures. Millions of souls have come into this world cursed with a black skin and have been denied the privilege of the priesthood and the fullness of the blessings of the gospel. These are the descendants of Cain. Moreover, they have been made to feel their inferiority and have been separated from the rest of mankind from the beginning. 
So where we Christians believe that all mankind suffers because the world fell into sin because of Adam, the LDS Church believes that no one suffers because of Adam's sin, but the black race suffers because of Cain's sin. Is any of this making sense to you? These quotes are not from me. I'm just giving you the facts that they have long believed. Uh, let's see here more. Um, as a result of re uh, rebellion, Cain was cursed with a black skin. This is McConkie. He became the father of the Negroes. In 1949, the first presidency of the church made an official declaration. It said, The attitude of the church with reference to the Negroes remains that it always stood. It is not a matter of declaration of a policy, but a direct commandment from the Lord on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, but they are not entitled to the priesthood at this present time. Finally, regarding an overall view, the LDS Church, its leaders have maintained about the uh, black people. This is uh, from um, Marky Peterson. Quote, think of the Negro cursed as to the priesthood. The Negro who in the pre-existence lived the type of life which justified the Lord in sending him to the earth in the lineage of Cain with a black skin and possibly being born in darkest Africa. If that Negro is willing... When he hears the gospel to accept it, he may have many of the blessings of the gospel. In spite of all he did in the pre-existent life, the Lord willing, if the Negro accepts the gospel with real, sincere faith and is really converted, to give him the blessings of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. If that Negro is faithful all his days, he can and will enter the celestial kingdom. Sounds pretty uh, good, doesn't it? But he will go there as a servant. But he will get celestial glory. That's in Race Problems as They Affect the Church, addressed by Marky e. Peterson, an apostle of the LDS Church. Joseph Fielding Smith says, Not only was Cain called upon to suffer for killing Abel, but because of the wickedness, he had become an a father of an inferior race. And finally, Brigham Young said, You must not think from what I say that I am opposed to slavery. No. The Negro is damned and is to serve his master till God chooses to remove the curse of Ham. That's quoted in the New York Herald, May 4th, 1855. Finally, I have a quote on this. I can't even read it. If you want to read it, it'll be in the notes. It's just too long and too disturbing. And it's from Mark E. Peterson about segregation and about uh, their attitude and what he says about uh, Negroes, which is what they referred to him then, and one of the lines is, "We now, after he says all this, this uh, stuff, he says, now we are generous with the Negro. We are willing to, uh, that the Negro have the highest kind of education. I would be willing to let every Negro drive a Cadillac if they could afford it. And it goes on and on and on. Now, you may say, listen, um, they changed this in 1978, Sean McCraney. Why are you still picking on the LDS Church for this? Well, here's, there's a couple of reasons I'm going to cover for a minute. But let me ask you this. Why did they change in 1978? There's a lot of reasons that are out there. The LDS Church will say because the prophet received a revelation that now the blacks are able to have the priesthood. Everybody before them, they weren't worthy. Maybe in heaven there was a group of blacks that came all the way through till 1978 that were unworthy. And then blacks after that came, 1978 on, you're the worthy blacks, you know. I don't know, but that seems to be what they're saying. But from everything I've read, it was primarily based on the fact that the LDS Church built a temple in Brazil. They have always had the policy that a person cannot have one drop of black blood in their body. It's black blood. It's not any race. It's just black blood. And if they do, they cannot have the priesthood. And they had a problem. The people of Brazil had contributed the money to build this temple, and they discovered that many of them have black blood in their bodies. And they didn't know what to do. So it seems like from everything that I've read that they had to make a decision on uh, to whether to give it to them or not. Now, of course, there were other factors that played into this announcement. How much, we will never know. Uh, one of them, on November 13th, 1969, uh, eight years, seven years before the announcement, people began to make stances. This was the, I mean, 1969, we began to get a little bit more 
thoughtful, and Stanford University on November 13th of 1969, uh, they said we will not participate in athletics with Brigham Young University any longer because of their racist stance. So they started to get more and more heat for this type of thinking, and uh, because of that, ultimately the doctrine changed in 1979. Now, I have a letter where uh, essentially a person... Uh, this is a letter that's a copy of a letter from Legrand Richards, who was an apostle in the church at the time of the change. They had a conversation with Legrand Richards, and they uh, asked him why the announcement of the blacks now being able to receive the priesthood. And they summarized seven points as to why it happened. I'm going to quickly go through those. And then at the end of the summary, uh, they sent it to Legrand Richards. He wrote a letter back in return and said, I have no problem with, with your summary of what I said about why the blacks get the priesthood beginning in 1978. This is it. The basic points of the stories, as I remember them, are one, that the whole situation was provoked by, by the Brazilian temple affair. Apparently, most of the South American members would not have been able to use the temple due to their Negro ancestry. Two, President Kimball personally interviewed each of the 12 apostles on the Negro question and asked you all to prepare references for and against giving blacks the priesthood. That doesn't sound like a prophet receiving revelation to me. Three, President Kimball's prayer offered at the June 1st prayer circle was that God would inspire all of you to do what was pleasing to him and what would be best for his children. Four, a letter was sent to all church officials, was first presented to the 12 apostles by the First Presidency and voted upon. This occurred one week after President Kimball's prayer for guidance. Five, the official letter mentioned in point four was the only written document involved in the policy change. No written revelation or account of inspiration was otherwise produced. No one ever said that God came and told the prophet, listen, you need to give the blacks the priesthood now. It's time. It all seems to be a matter of um, committees and uh, decision-making and policy-making. And... Um, no new, number six, no new interpretation of the Book of Abraham curse upon the descendants of Cain will be offered by the uh, uh, Mormon church. You said that we still don't know why the blacks are cursed and that the lack of valiancy in the premortal existence is not a doctrine. We just read how prophets from age old have been teaching that it was a doctrine. And then with reference to intermarriage, number seven, the church does not encourage them, but if they occur, the church will support a white person marrying a black person. To all those things... Uh, LeGrand Richards, Apostle of the Church, president at the time when the doctrine was changed in 1978, agreed and said, I have no problem with, with what I've said. He didn't want those things to be made public, but in a letter he said it's okay. Um, so, what of it? The whole priesthood thing, 1978 is a long time ago. It changed. Why am I bringing it up here? Uh, why do I continue to harass the LDS Church over this matter? Two reasons. First, I was brought up under the blacks are an inferior race system. Those seeds were planted in my young heart and it taken an act of God to get them out of my heart. If they were in my heart when I was born in 61, then they have to be in all people my age, all the way who were born all the way up until near 1978 and everybody going back. This venom has been in the LDS church, and it was accepted as a doctrine. It was taught as truth. It was emphatically stood for by very important leaders of the church. And every Latter-day Saint embraced that sick, disgusting doctrine as though it were true. And then they mormoniciously changed it in 1978 without an answer as to really why. They just changed it, and now they just, they just go forward. PR all the way, black people come in and join the church, gives them more validation, and on you go. Why a black person would ever be LDS, I don't know. How you could sit there knowing that the LDS church t teaches this stuff or taught this stuff and then changed it, I, I have no idea. But I want to let you in on a secret. Most of the LDS uh, members who are my age or older who truly studied the doctrines, most of them are racist to the core. And it comes because of this seed that started so long ago. And you can't get away from it. The Book of Mormon has not changed its racist doctrines toward light and skin and delightsome and black and loathsome. It's still there. They haven't changed it on that uh, course. And they haven't changed the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham, and what it says about it either. They don't change things. They just change the way you're handling it. And, and people accept it. It's amazing. The second reason is, what's next? 
we have trusted the LDS leaders with doctrines and and the answers they've had, and they change them, whatever re what other revelations are going to be changed and altered in the future? What can you stand on that's truth? What are you going to do if they come out and say, you know, the Pearl of Great Price isn't true anymore? We're just not going to accept that. And maybe you've built your whole life's belief system on that. What are you going to do when they change the temple ceremonies again and again and again? What are you going to do when they say uh, polygamy is completely gone and they remove Doctrine and Covenants 132? And you're, you're somebody out there who, who is waiting for that in the eternities, like, like Howard W. Hunter is, an ex-president of the church with his two wives now that Gordon B. Hinckley says are his for eternity. What are you going to do when the Pearl of Great Price, when modern, modern revelation changes? I suggest that we can't do anything but look at the facts. Blacks were either an inferior race that came through Cain and would never hold the priesthood until the resurrection as it was taught because of their pre-existence waffling or Mormonism teaches doctrines that are full of hate and prejudice and racism. You have more facts now about it. Go out and check them. Go online. Go to www.utlm.org. Type in blacks in the priesthood. Type in racism. Do your homework. I'm pulling things out so you can see it's not fair for you to have your family and your lives believing in a system where they can change it on you willy-nilly. And I'm glad they changed this because at least the racism has died down. But the seeds are still there and you're trusting in an institution that will say and do whatever it can to grow and get power and to get money. Okay, we are going to go to emails. We only have 12 minutes left. Uh, this is a beautiful one. Uh, it says, Sean, I stumbled onto your television show the other night and it didn't take long for me to figure out. Here is another man of God bashing Mormons. After watching you for a few minutes, it became obvious that you are not much of a threat. And then he says he went to the website. He says he ordered the book. He can't believe that I can say I went to college, my spelling, typos, atrocious grammar, uh, it's really funny, the things he says. He goes on and attacks me in every way possible. Uh, claims all kinds of things. Says, Sean, you don't look like a man of God in your personal appearance with your trendy clothes, open shirt, rolled up sleeves, and faggy hair. That's a quote from this guy. Uh, he says he's LDS, real, real strong, unbiased uh, guy there, full of love, sharing his sentiments in a very long letter. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. All right. Uh, this is from Valerie. You, quite, you mentioned matter on your show last night. Please educate me on how Mormons view matter. And uh, I hope I haven't answered this before, but it falls kind of in line with Joseph Smith's translation of the book of Abraham. Essentially, uh, I, I did mention this last week, Mormons believe that matter cannot be created or destroyed ever by anyone, including God. So God uh, himself got matter that previously existed. He put it together. And from that, he created not only you and I, this world and everything in it. God does not have the ability to create matter out of nothing. And that is their stance on matter. They also have a stance that says anything that get, can be considered real must be considered matter. That's a heavy theological uh, concept, but what they're saying is there's no such thing as uh, non-material matter. Meaning when you die, your spirit that goes to God is matter. Everything that can be considered real is matter. The problem with that is, can we consider our memories and our thoughts real? I can, and yet I know those aren't made of matter. So that destroys that philosophical concept right off the bat. Okay, uh, but that's that question from Valerie. Thank you. Uh, let's go to uh, Dell, who says... I just want you to know that you are already starting to fade, just as all before you and after you have. You claim to have a large following since you changed your format from discussing the Bible to anti-Mormon slat. Well, it worked, I'm sure, for a while, but I noticed many more of your callers showing up on other call TV evangels. Some of my critics are just not really good with the English language. That's, that's, that's just so difficult. I wish you guys would just take a little time to convey your thoughts in, in some way that can be understood. Uh, I give you one more year tops and you will be gone. It was a fun ride, Sean, but the truth is you are a bitter man hiding behind a man-made religion 
with only the buffetings of Satan left. Um, hope you have another career to fall back on, and on and on and on and on. And just to let you know, I responded to him and said, it doesn't matter if I'm taken off the air tomorrow uh, for whatever reason. I trust in God. I've been allowed to be on here this far, and we didn't really plan this out. And uh, we've been able to share, and we've been able to see people come to the Lord. And so if that occurs from this, if it's one person, it's been worth it. Uh, it's been more than one. And if it ends, it won't matter, because God's in charge of my life, and uh, I hope he's in charge of yours, Dell. Uh, John wrote, uh, "You're doing amazing. God is doing amazing things around us. He thanks us for the show. He says his family, uh, his wife and he, uh, it's only been a few months since he left the church. He wrote, my wife's best friend and her husband are in full transition away from Mormonism. They have four children. It is a process, a tough one. Two women and one man at my work are regularly confiding in me and are on their way to the truth. Two are watching your show now. They are blown away. Gave your book to one of them. Uh, that's a great thing if you have friends who are interested, questioning, wondering, not sure of their salvation, don't have a relationship with the Lord. You know, uh, you can email us for a book and uh, we can send you one. You can get one in bookstores, give it to them, have them watch the show and uh, we can go from there. Uh, this is from Lee who says, you seem to care so much about getting people saved and to believe as you do. I can't imagine when I die that God will be so petty as to get riled up over whether or not I stated in a prayer that I'm turning my life over to Jesus or whether I believe in the right concept of grace and works. If God is that petty, I'd be happier with a little distance between he and I. And Lee, I have a feeling you're going to get your wish. You know? Uh, you don't... The problem with many Latter-day Saints, Lee is LDS is that um, you don't understand the holiness of God and you don't have a fear of God. You believe he's your daddy, that you just automatically, by virtue of your birth, your magnificent, glorious birth here, to come here and grace the world with your material body and to give us of your gifts, you don't see God for what he is, and that is a holy fire. And because he is a holy fire, uh, he allowed his son to come down and take on a body of flesh like us and suffer for us. All right? And that suffering was cast down upon from him, this fiery God. And he poured out his wrath and judgment for sin upon his own son. Now, Lee, you seem to think that this God is, is not going to do anything to you because he's just so open and loving. And gosh, it's Lee. Lee's coming back to heaven. My goodness. God is just jumping around and dancing. But Lee, what you don't understand is this God poured out his wrath on his son. When you stand there and try to say, well, you know, how big of a deal is your son? You're going to face that same fire. And uh, I fear that for people. I know it's a reality. Jesus spoke of hell as a reality. I don't like to preach on it. I like to preach on the good things Jesus did. But hell is a reality, my brother. And you need to come to terms with that or else you just may get your wish there in that impetuous email that you wrote. Um, this is from somebody asked the question, I was watching one day when you spoke about being a Mormon and that you served a mission. What was it in your life that made you see things differently? Uh, quickly, I'll just give you a rehearsal. Uh, I was born again at the side of the road after being LDS for 40 years. Changed my life. I came to see the Lord in a new way. I recognized myself as an egregious sinner and that Jesus was the one who changed my heart, changed my eyes, changed my life. Uh, I'm still a sinner. I still fail but I have a different heart in my response to sin than I ever did before, and I realized that the Jesus I learned about in Mormonism was not the right guy. He didn't lead me to new birth. He didn't give me new life. He made me, uh, he strapped me to a wheel of never-ending never duties. So um, that's what happened to me after the mission. The second question is, I'm also curious about your stance on baptism as an ordinance necessary for salvation when Jesus himself was baptized. And when he said that it was required, Jesus never said baptism was required. Uh, there are many references. We have a show on baptism. I think we did it in 2006. You can go and get the archive and watch that show. And it gives you all the answers as to how baptism has been misunderstood in the Bible. It's not an ordinance that you have to have to be saved. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross did not jump into a font really quickly and uh, be baptized. It's your faith that brings you with God. Once you have that faith, you're going to want to be baptized. So, and it's a wonderful ordinance. 
that God has provided us with as human beings. All right, Lisa says, I was not raised in the LDS church, but my husband was. My marriage is falling apart because of it. I'm going, I try going to church with him and his family, but something inside me has always felt that it is wrong. He is brainwashed by his family and the LDS church. I don't know what to do. I love him with all my heart and soul and couldn't bear to lose him. I've been searching for ways to teach him why the LDS church isn't true, but I have been unsuccessful. I feel you are the last hope. Uh, goes on to compliment some things about me and then says uh, her husband's not too educated in church doctrine. His problem is that he's been told that the church is true his entire life. Lisa, there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. Some of those ways, as the Lord guides you, are to hit him over the head with some of the stuff like we're talking about on the show. Sometimes when you do that, they don't want to hear or listen anymore. Sometimes when you do it, it makes them wake up and they want to learn more. So you can try that approach, God uh, leading. Uh, the other way is you become the best Christian possible and you become a, a Christian wife who loves him, who supports him, who respects him, who lifts him up, who encourages him in the name of Jesus, who lives her life the way a Christian woman would. And when he becomes argumentative or attacking, which he will because your stance threatens him, you just come back to him with love and con continue to love him. Do not divorce over this issue. Um, you have long suffering the way Jesus wants you to with your husband and you continue to love him. Read your Bible, go to church, not LDS, go to the Christian church, learn the word, pray, and in time he will see the light if it's God's will, and I believe that it is, so I don't think you're going to uh, have a problem there. Lisa, three minutes. Um, talks about the Melchizedek priesthood. Oh, don't you think, Sean, it's beneficial for new born-again uh, Mormons or Christians and other listeners to explain after the regeneration of their hearts that the, there's a lifelong process of sanctification? I'll spend a minute telling you about that. Once you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you've been a sinner, you, uh, you ask for forgiveness for your sin and for Him to become the Lord of your life, whether it's in the outward prayer, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to have a sinner's prayer, but your heart has to believe and your mouth has to confess. It does say that. So it usually will come out in that type of a prayer. And once you've done that, a couple things will happen. You either are going to have a miraculous experience that will change your life suddenly, you may have no miraculous experience that takes a long time for you to understand, but in the end, either way, you have to have faith that Jesus is going to be faithful to what he says. So if you have said, Jesus, change my life, forgive me of my sin, become Lord of my life, trust that he will do that. That's the first step. Once you've done that, you have to start learning about what he wants for your life. And so that's a lifelong process. The first thing is regeneration of your spirit. Immediately, you're born again by either trusting in it or it actually gives you some physical thing that goes along with that. Once you've done that, continue to walk with him and you have to read the word. You have to hear the word taught. You have to pray. You have to continue on. And as you do that, you've got to hear the word taught. Your life will begin to conform to his will as it's laid out in the Bible. That is sanctification over a long period of time. And it takes a lifetime for us to get rid of our sin natures. And we die with our sin natures too. So you're, never, you're not going to die perfect, but you're going to die in him. And by his righteousness and his sanctification, you have been saved. So that's the process. Then when you are ultimately resurrected, then the full rebirth process is complete. Jesus justifies you through his blood. He sanctifies you through his life and through your life as you live. And then when you're resurrected into a new model, that full reborn process is complete and you go on. And this is what Nate is speaking about. Not just talking about being born again and have the Jesus experience, but to continue on thereafter. And that's very important to mention. Uh, we have 43 seconds. We have a lot more emails. No time to do it. I appreciate you hanging with us without calls tonight. We missed your calls. They help make the show diverse and interesting. Uh, but let me say, we are not again meeting at uh, Denny's tonight at 5th South and 125-150 West. We are going to be meeting in Ogden this coming Monday, uh, November 5th, 6 p.m. to 8.30 at the Denny's on Washington Boulevard. We would love to see you there afterward. We're going to have an open baptism. If you want a renewal on life, if you want to test the, uh, the Lord and what he says, come and take the challenge. Give your life to the Lord. We'll see you next week on Heart of the Matter.